Hello, humans, and welcome to the waiting room that is my life right now. Forgot what a roller coaster life can be and how painful it is at times. Life is pain. Thank you for your patience in between episodes. So much is in the air right now, and I'm doing the best I can. But the good news is I think I'm doing much better than I feel like I'm doing. And there are moments in the day where I feel okay. <laughs> like, not everything is fucked and doomed. If you're also <laughs> in the horrible, painful washing machine that can be life at times, exercise and diet are incredibly helpful. So helpful, you may feel compelled to go off your psych meds and completely lose your mind and start recording intros to elevator music. But hopefully the medication kicks back in because I don't know what's true anymore. Um, all I know is yes, this is a really tough time in my life and I feel like totally screwed and like a failure and it's probably not true. Evidence of that is my mind is often a liar. I thought this episode was total garbage from when it was recorded six weeks ago or more. I didn't actually check that, but a long time ago. And I even emailed Matt to tell him we need to redo the episode. He said, okay, Sam, we'll redo the episode. And then I sent the audio files to Jamie Morris, who helps us with sound. Uh, hopefully will be a more permanent fixture of the podcast uh, as we get more patronage and can afford some more help. And he sent the episode back and ended up being one of my favorites of all time. And you'll see why it's, uh, it's medicine to me in my current state. So everybody, thank you for humoring me. Let's get on to the show. You're an adult and that means you have to do adult things, pay your taxes, pay the bills, go to work and work hard, put food on the table, babies through college, all the stuff. And when you're doing this important adult work, you gotta take it seriously, it's serious business. That means no fun, no laughing. Good work doesn't happen when you're goofing off. Work and play are two very different things, right? Well, maybe not. Our guest today is Matt Weinstein. He's a TED talker, great author, and really cool human who owns a company called Playfair, which brings play and laughter and goofing off to the workplace and shows you that it doesn't necessarily have to be so serious. You can still get great work done with a light heart and gentle spirit and playful attitude. And I'm just going to leave it there. Let's get on with it. Here is... Matt Weinstein. Hi, Matt. <laughs> hey, Sam. Thanks for coming on the program. Yeah. So you're in for a treat. Oh, I'm yeah. looking forward you, to being yeah. in for a treat. <laughs> because uh, you're the fun guy. Yeah. And I got a ticket this morning. So uh. you have your hands full with uh. me. <laughs> <laughs> for speeding? Uh, no. Um, for some reason, I thought the uh, we were going to meet at 10. I didn't read properly. Uh -huh. And so I parked in a spot where I had to leave at nine. Oh yeah. And then I checked the email this morning and was like, Oh great. I, I, have, get another to, hour. I have another hour. <laughs> I forgot about the car. Uh, <sighs> That's okay. Yeah. 
so could you start and just tell us who, who you are and what you do? Sure. You need to know my name as well? We do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it from the top. Legal name. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm Matt Weinstein, and actually my title in my organization is Emperor. I'm never outranked at any meetings that way. Of Playfair Inc., and we're a company that teaches about laughter, play, and fun. We're a community-building organization that uses laughter and play as a technology to bond people together. And recently, we've been working with some really huge groups. We have one uh, coming up this year at the University of California, Berkeley, for their entire freshman class, which is about 9,000 students. So we're going to do a giant play day event with them in the uh, football stadium. You know, not in the stands like most people get to do, but actually down on the field with the idea of, you know, it's their first day away from home, they're feeling a little scared and using the the technology of play to bond them together and make them feel safe and make them feel like, oh yeah, I made the right decision in coming here. I'm always interested about how people started doing what they're doing. Uh And so your focus is on having fun and playing, really embracing play almost therapeutically. Yeah. You're a trained psychologist, right? Did I get that right? No, no, no. No? My degree actually was in English literature, not in psychology at all. But I kind of, when I was in graduate school, fell into the children's theater, which was an improv theater. And I loved the way the play would start on the stage, but then it would move into the audience and get the kids really involved. And the best part of being in a theater company for me was how bonded together I felt with the other actors just rehearsing together and doing theater games together. And I, you know, I love performing, but I thought, oh, you know, I bet there's a way that I can take this playing games together to bond people together and make that the end in itself. Rather, you know, not just people who want to go out and do a show, but just people who want to live together and work together and bond together. So that was kind of the the origins of it. Just Play and fun are huge umbrella terms, and they mean very different things to very different people. Yeah. And so just in terms of when you're working with a group, you're saying, let's have some fun. How do you distill what fun? Because, I mean, a lot of people find going to a concert fun or hanging out in large groups. That's like my worst nightmare. Right. And a lot of the things I do for, for fun aren't in the moment fun. Like they'd be, you know, like writing. I mm-hmm. love to write mm-hmm. or I love to draw, but mm-hmm. while I'm doing it, it's not like, yeah, fun, you know, <laughs> but the, the, the process, especially looking back when you get to see what you've made right. is fun. And so just how do you define what, what okay. is fun? Well, you know, I have a very strong filter, which is about, is what I'm doing, helping people connect with each other? Is it building community? Is it bonding them together? So that's the kind of fun that I'm interested in, not just laughter and play. Although very often when people laugh together, then they look at each other and you notice they feel connected in some way because what they're saying is, yes, I'm laughing, you're laughing. That must mean we have shared values together. We find the same thing funny. We find the same thing important. But just people laughing is not necessarily people having fun. In fact, a lot, especially in the workplace, of what passes for humor is very toxic. People kind of being afraid to confront each other directly. And so they make, you know, quote unquote, a joke, which is really a put down of someone else or it's some kind of veiled hostility. 
And so just because people say, oh, I was just kidding around, that doesn't mean it had any kind of good intention or it was beneficial in any way. So I'm not saying all laughter uh, is good. Um, what I'm looking for is what, not only what's the intention, because that's important, but also what's the result. Do people feel closer, more trusting, more open as the result of it? So, you know, we're, yes, we're a company that uses fun and play, but really the design of Playfair is to help people build community and feel connected to each other. The challenge that you've made your life purpose mm -hmm. is interesting because the way I generally think about fun, it's a recreational, you know, playing and fun is this recreational thing that you might do yeah. on the weekends. Yeah. And your whole work is about bringing it into all the time as much as you can. And it's very communal the way your program works in terms of getting big groups together to just let down their guard and have some fun. There's a belief and I don't know if it's American or what it is that mm -hmm. work is serious, you know, yeah. fun is fun. Yeah. And especially as a employee or employer, and even me who's self-employed right now, right. it's hard to feel like you're on the right path if it's just fun, you know, or if somebody, when somebody asks me, how's it going? I almost feel like I have to be like, Ah, oh, yeah, it's really tough, man, but it's good, you know, it's tough. Right. It's <laughs> and then they know you're serious yeah, about and, your work. And then they know tough. I'm serious. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a deeply ingrained thing in our society that work is not supposed to be fun. That's why it's called work. But the kind of, I don't even know if it's counterintuitive anymore because it's really gaining a foothold. The idea that we had, you know, 30, 40 years ago was, hey, don't you think that people who are enjoying themselves are going to actually be more productive rather than less productive? If you see somebody on the job having fun, instead of going and squashing that out and saying, get back to work, maybe you could say to yourself, uh-huh, okay, I'm pushing these people. I bet if they have a little joy at, the, at break, they're going to come back renewed and re-energized. If I track my people, are the people who are having the most fun actually my least performing people? Or amazingly enough, are they turning to be my best performing people? If I reward and recognize and appreciate them and bring more joy into the workplace, duh, don't you think maybe we're going to have a better return on investment? And, and that's absolutely what we found to be true. I mean, even on the basis of the bottom levels, bottom line levels, it costs a lot more to recruit and train new people than it does to keep the people you already have feeling happy and excited and connected and proud to be part of your company. And it's not just about giving people a raise because anybody can do that. The companies that inspire long-term loyalties are the ones where people feel rewarded, recognized, appreciated, where they feel like they have a stake in the company and where they feel like they get energy from going to work rather than feeling depleted at the end of the day. There definitely are a ton of companies that are trying to bring that into the workplace. And I see it often done with like amenities, right? Like uh -huh. We have beer in the fridge or we have right. the best coffee and we have a bike repair station. That's what's happening in tech a lot. Right. It's not solving the burnout issue. I have a lot of friends who work for these companies. Yeah. It's not. And I know I hear more often than not. Yeah, it was a great company. Right. Uh, but it was really toxic. Yeah. You know, it, and so I guess what I'm curious about is what is the process of of really getting deep? And because when I watch 
what you're doing. You mm-hmm. get a huge group of people together mm-hmm. and you you basically have I mean it seems like you're trying to get them into that childlike shamelessness where you can sing and you're not worried if you sing badly right. and you can dance and you're not worried if you're a bad dancer and you're just doing and expressing yourself and it's very animated and fun and I see a ton of people resist it in the beginning but eventually you carry them through but for somebody who doesn't have your program in front of them right how does that process start of like breaking down these barriers especially in yourself where it's you know when i started recording this program i had so much reservation i mean the first episode i did was very like hello this is sam lamont and welcome uh-huh. to the <laughs> right. and i'm trying to have more and more fun and it's hard yeah yeah you know it doesn't mean that all of life is a joy right? Things are what they are. There's this concept that I really love, and this applies to your parking ticket today too, called basic trust. And what you believe is whatever happens in your life is fine because it's going to help you grow into exactly who you need to become. And it doesn't mean everything's going to be fantastic. doesn't mean there's going to be no downs and all ups. No, it's like whatever happens, okay, I'm okay with it. Because you can never, ever really know what the results of anything that happens are going to be down the line. So, you know, and, and that's the same thing with fun. No one size fits all. You have to really know the people you're working with and the people you're interacting with and think about what might be fun for them. What do they already do for fun? There's a story I like to tell about this guy, Jeff Alexander, who had a, a dental practice and a pretty large one. And one month he figured he could give a $200 bonus to each of his employees. But as he later said to me, okay, what if I wrote to meet you a check for $200? They would go, hey, Jeff, this is great. Then they go home, they deposit in the bank, they pay a couple of bills, come to work the next day, nothing at all has changed. So this is the playful element he did with the same money. He closed down his entire operation for a couple hours, brought everybody to the shopping mall, Walk, put him in a, in, a, in a kind of semicircle and walked around, gave him each $200 in cash. And this is what he said to them. He said to them, this is not your money. He said, this is my money. I own this company. But anything you can buy for yourself in the next hour using this money is yours to keep. He said, got a couple of rules. You have to buy at least five different things. They all have to be for you personally. And any money unspent after the hour, I'm taking back. Go get them. Well, it was great as people like running through the mall, you know, yelling about the bargains to each other. People behind the registers were saying to his people like, what company you work for? I got to quit my job, start running for your (laughs) company. And then after the hour, he gathered everybody in the food court and treated them to free lunch. And and people got up and they did kind of a show and tell of what they they had bought. And a, a crowd started gathering, you know, first there was like, 10 people, then 50 people. And by the time he was done, there was over 100 people there. And the first guy gets up and he shows off this power tool kit he has bought and all these fancy drills and stuff and is kind of bored applause from the people watching. And luckily for Dr. Jeff, the next woman had spent all her money in Victoria's Secret and she like, you know, whips out this one negligee and people in the audience start yelling. This gives him an idea. He just goes out and hands out his business card to the total strangers in the mall, he told me he got five walk-in customers the next week. And when people came in, they just said, I love who you are. I love what you do. I want to give business to somebody like you. And, you know, I, I got a chance once to do a, uh, a talk at a conference in Europe. 
And I told that story about the dentist. And a couple of months later, I get a letter from a guy in South Africa. This guy's name is uh, Mike Phillips, and he runs a textile mill, Migra Textiles. And he wrote me, I love that story about the dentist, and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I did it myself, but he had a much bigger operation. This is a textile. He said, I called it the Magical Mystery Tour. And I shut down operations for one uh, half the day. I had buses bustle my people to the shopping mall. He showed me a photo of one of his custodial employees, and she had taken the money. And he gave him all the same rules that 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 uh, the dentist had had given. She had started buying all kinds of little gifts for her kids, and her friends made her put all that stuff back and forced her against her will to buy a leather jacket for herself. The first time in her entire life she had ever bought a luxury item for herself. And there was a picture of her with the boss, posed with, with her leather coat. And he told me the union shop steward came up to him in the middle of this whole madcap shopping spree and said to him, if you're going to start treating us like this, we're going to have to look at you a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. He told me a couple of months later, there was a general strike of all the textile mills in the entire country of South Africa, and only one of them voted not to go out on strike, which was his. And it wasn't just about this one thing, but it was about kind of humanizing the management and the employees. So they began to see each other as people. And that's what you know, play can do. It's a very leveling kind of experience. I, I'll just tell you one more story. I don't want to just go on and on with these, but this was a very similar one. I got a, a note from a MasterCard in St. Louis that one of their divisions had done dress up your supervisor day. And their, the supervisor, all the supervisors agreed to be dressed up by their employees. You know, they had a couple of ground rules. You couldn't have too much skin showing and no cross-gender dressing. But, you know, they definitely had Elvis in the building and a lot of the, the female managers dressed up as biker chicks and people dressed up in pajamas. And one of the departments even dressed up their uh, manager as a mime so that they wouldn't have to listen to him talk. But apparently he got a real kick out of trying to, you know, communicate in sign language to them. Uh, you know, but the meta message is beautiful here because what they're saying is, you know, everybody here started out as somebody's baby. And at the bottom line is we're in this artificial hierarchy by virtue of our jobs, but we're all just people here. And we can really, what they're saying is, we don't need to keep a full sense of solemnity and dignity. We're just people here and we can have fun together and you can have some fun at our expense. I thought that was brilliant. I've been in so many positions. It's funny how I always forget it, where it feels like if I just get paid a little bit more, I'm going to love this job. Yeah. Right? I've gotten, and then I got a $25,000 raise. Wow. Didn't fix it. If anything, yeah. I hated it worse. Yeah. I don't know why. I didn't think those are exactly corresponding. No, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it didn't solve the issue. Yeah. What is the need? I understand how when somebody is, rather than just cutting you a check, oh, here you go, here's more money, which if you're really paycheck to paycheck could could really help. But yeah. when somebody shows up through your program or your advice, somebody shows up and it's always about service mm -hmm. in some way or another, where it's one of yours was swap jobs. So the supervisor, yeah. when I was watching your videos, one of yeah. them, the supervisor comes and you get to supervise the supervisor doing your, your job. job. Yeah. There's an element of showing up with your body, being present and just being another human amongst humans. 
what is that feeding? Like, what is the intrinsic difference in a community? Because it's hard for me to pinpoint. I feel like I emotionally know, but I've never thought about. Yeah. Well, you know, for most people, there's a very small circle of people, your family, your loved ones, that you're allowed to show love to. And no, you can't, you know, there are certain things that are obviously inappropriate in the, in the workplace, but to open your heart to someone, people don't think of that. But you can touch people. I mean, I've had people run out of one of my seminars. And when they came back, they just said, I couldn't stand it. I had to call up 1-800-Flowers and send some of my flowers to my secretary and tell her how much I appreciate her and how much I know that I couldn't be here today except for the people who are not here but are making the company work without me. So you think it, but do you express it? And, you know, if you express it with some kind of fun and panache, then people start telling their friends about how great it is to to be at work. And when you start saying that out loud, you feel a lot better about, you know, I'm thinking of something that happened to me because, you know, going out and doing a lot of lectures, I'm traveling all the time. And, And this is something I've suggested other people do because it happened to me. The people back in our office looked up what hotel I was in, called up room service, and had a piece of cheesecake delivered to my room. And, uh, you know, the great twist that, that I knew it was them, but the great twist they put on it, they wrote on it, I'm thinking of you tonight. Are you thinking of me? And they didn't sign it, you know, but I figured out who did it. And I said to them, what was that about? They said, oh, I, we wanted you to have your little fantasy life. Just imagine who might be thinking about you. But, you know, those are the kind of things. Yes, I'm out alone by myself, but I'm not. I'm out of sight, but someone is thinking about me. That's just a fantastic, fantastic way to show, look, you're going to spend more time working, commuting to work, and thinking about work than you are with your flesh and blood family. So why not create some of the same kind of joy you get from your family, from the people who you're spending even more time with, the people at work? I have this uh, tattoo on my wrist, which says Rule 62. Yeah, what is that? It's part of a joke where there was a group of people who met regularly. They were like a support group. Uh And they started making rules for the group, like you must wear a tie and you must wear a button-up shirt. And this you cannot say these words. Right. And then when they got to Rule 62, they abolished all the rules because they realized they had ruined the whole group. Uh And so it means don't take yourself too seriously. That's a habit. I mean, I remember when I heard that. Right. It felt like the first time anyone had ever said, you don't have to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Like you're not in the best possible way. Like you're not that important. Like, you know, the world will live without you. And so just enjoy it. You know, like <laughs> you're not here yeah, to exactly. save the world. Yeah. You're just here to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I fall back into that all the time where I, generally when I'm feeling terrible, I'm taking myself way too serious. That's like a real, I mean, there's food and exercise, but that's a real fundamental cause of of my pain is that I feel like if this doesn't go right, you know, if this interview doesn't go right, it's over. The whole thing is over (laughs) rather than like this interview doesn't go right. We never air it, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Everything is fixable. The trick is to do away with comparative judgment about somebody's doing it better than me. Well, guess what? Yeah. Someone's always going to do it better than you. But you are bringing your own unique voice to it. I mean, that's totally the only way you can sustain yourself. You know, one of my teachers, the, the sociologist Ashley Montague, 
you used to have a great thing. He used to say, my goal in life is to die young at a ripe old age. And that's what he meant, that especially as you get older, it's harder to manifest that playful spirit that, you know, the language of play is something everybody speaks fluently as a child. But, you know, especially with sports, as you get older, unless you're the best, you have to sit on the sidelines and watch everybody else play. So, you know, that's why it's, I'm so excited about this thing that's happening at Berkeley. Everybody's going to be on the field, not in the stadium, watching, you know, 24 people run around with the football. Everybody gets to go down and participate. And that's how life can be. It's a, it's a participatory event. It seems like you have videos of your programs, various yeah. programs that you've done. Yeah. And when I see it, it seems almost like the key to having fun is bringing fun, like giving it away. Mm-hmm. Is that the place to start? Because I am, I need to enjoy what I'm doing these days a little bit more. And it's, right. I, I recognize that it's completely possible. One of our key activities that we do in a lot of our programs is something we call the perfect boss. And in this one, you're in a group of three and you rotate. One person is the boss and the other two people are their employees. But the boss's goal is to just totally raise the level of appreciation, of connection, of joy, of celebration for all the people in the room. But like any good boss, you delegate authority to your two employees and you just send them out over and over again on missions of joy for you. So it's so much fun to feel, yes, I'm empowered to send my people out to go say, go over to that guy and ask him if he'd like a little shoulder rub. And if he says yes, give it to him. And if not, come back to me and I'll think of something else. And people are just running all over the room dancing. And, and you know, it's like, would I really? go up to somebody, a total stranger and sing a song for them or hug them or give them a high five or have a little, no, I wouldn't. But if my boss told me I have to do this, it's so great because we empower each other to just do the kind of amazing celebrations. And it's totally leaderless in terms of you know, I just set it in motion and, and I just stand and watch it. And I mean, what's great is people jump up in the stage and they'll say, my boss wanted me to tell you he's having a great time and, you know, give me a high five or whatever. So I get to be a beneficiary of, of it too. But that's the thing. We need permission. And most people don't give themselves permission and mostly our culture doesn't give us permission. So that's what I love about that particular exercise because everybody's just focused on bringing joy to somebody else. It never fails how that always works. Yeah. uh, The last guest, Steve, said, if you want it, give it away. Like, if you want love, give it away. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how easy it is to forget that. It's too easy (laughs) to forget. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, if you're in a place of scarcity yourself, you don't want to give anything away. But the realization that life is not scarce, especially when it comes to things like love and connection and feeling the give and take between people. That's infinite. I mean, that's real wealth. Hello, humans. This is an intermission to talk to you about how you can support the program. We're giving it a go to try and do this audience funded. We're not married to the idea, but we're going to give it a good shot. If you would like to hear more of this program, especially on a more regular basis, Go to www.patreon.com slash hellohuman 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash hello human. And pitch in whatever you'd like, a dollar a month, $5 a month. You can change it at any time. And it helps us get a little bit closer to being the company we want to be, which produces stories, videos, and audio programs like this that show the whole human experience and remind you, it's okay. Whatever is going on, it's okay. Great times, great. Bad times, great. It's all part of the same thing called human life. The show notes or description of the podcast have everything you need to know of how you can help and support us, including writing us a review on iTunes. And also, I've included a few other cool things I thought you should know about. A illustrator, Lindsay Falsone, reached out, and we're just going to shout out her art. There's a link to her Etsy page in the show notes. An organization called Self-Esteem Rising, which teaches women of all ages how to regain confidence and self-esteem if they've lost it, uh, is also in the show notes. And, you know, that that's a cause I can get behind. So... Yeah, check out the podcast description. It, it's got everything. Back to the show. Speaking of wealth, I think one of the really interesting parts about your story is you built this company, and part of your story is that you lost your life savings to Bernie Madoff, you and your wife, Janine. Yeah. And pretty mid-career, right? Mm-hmm. So you had to start completely over. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about scarcity, how do you survive through that and still enjoy it? You know, because we all have bills and some of us, you know, like right now I'm looking ahead, which is a dangerous thing to do for me. Right. And going, wow, I'm going to have to figure something out to pay the bills. Uh And then instantly get back into that scarcity. Oh gosh, I have to work harder. I have to do this. Right. The exact opposite of having fun, giving love, all the things that, you bring to the world and that yeah. I agree. And I intellectually know that's part of the solution. Right. And so when you're in that moment of scarcity, give us some survival guide here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was particularly difficult for me. Uh, I actually happened to be on vacation with a bunch of my friends in Antarctica at the time when Madoff happened. And Janine tracked me down on one of those ship to shore telephones, which cost $10 a minute to talk on and, you know, gave me the news. And, you know, I I have a a talk on the TED website called uh, What Bernie Madoff Couldn't Steal From Me. And one of the things I recount in that one was one of us had the presence of mind to say to the other one, you know, honey, we're not the kind of people who can afford to talk uh, $10 a minute anymore. (laughs) Those days are over. Uh, So we had to hang up. And I had seven days on the ship pretty much by myself um, without much support. And then when I came back, and of course I had to go to work, how difficult it was at first to teach about joy, laughter, play, fun, when I'm thinking to myself, can I afford my house? You know, can I afford anything? And it took a lot of deep soul searching, which, which you know, again, was fantastic for me. Because what I got to see is that a state of aliveness and joy and the human search for happiness is actually our native birthright. It's what we're all about. And even in dark times, and you know, although it was horrible to lose all our life savings, that was by no means the darkest time I've ever had in my life. But from anything, if you really look inside, your humanity is about 
opening up and seeing things new and just moving forward, moving forward. Things are going to go up. Things are going to go down. Our natural state is one of joy and celebration. And you find even the smallest thing to feel positive about and feel excited about. I don't even know if this is on one of the videos that you saw, but Janine and I had previously gone to, um, to France to study with the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. And he did just an amazing talk that really resonated with us during the Madoff times. He asked the question, he said, okay, raise your hand. Anybody here have a toothache right now? And we all looked around and nobody was raising their hands. He said, isn't that fantastic, right? Nobody here has a toothache. What an incredible cause for celebration, he says. But is anybody celebrating the fact that they don't have a toothache right now? And, you know, we all shook our heads no. And he says, in fact, when's the only time you even think about a toothache? And one guy raises his hand and he says, when I have one? <laughs> and Thich Nhat Hanh said, exactly. And then it's too late to celebrate, isn't it? He said, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to practice while you're here every morning what I call the non-toothache meditation. You get up first thing in the morning, you look in the mirror, you look at yourself and you ask yourself this question, what's not wrong in my life right now? What an amazing practice that was. Because, you know, the way most of us bond together is through this bond of, of mutual misery. You know, we talk about, oh, ain't it awful? Oh, my God, the same thing happened to me. Oh, you know, I can't believe the state of the, of, of the union right now. Uh, and, you know, that misery we call friendship. But it doesn't help your spirit That's to live like that. I have to, that is way too real, the mutual, mutual yeah. misery thing. Yeah. Wow. So I, I like to do gratitude lists, but the funny thing about my gratitude list is they're all things I have. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize that until you yeah. framed it in that way that the, the, what you don't have, the bad things that aren't in your life. Wow. I cannot wait to do that. Yeah. I feel like doing it right now. Yeah. Okay. What, what's um, not wrong? What's not wrong? Um, I'm so not used to thinking in this regard. I wanted to say things I have. Okay, what's not wrong? Um, I'm, I'm not unhealthy. Yeah, exactly. For the most part. Yeah. Um, I'm not alone. I'm, I'm not suffering. I'm not in nearly as much dire trouble as I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a chicken little. I always think my world's ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not responsible for fixing everything. Yeah. The world of the, uh, the weight of the world doesn't have to be entirely on your shoulders. In fact, it isn't. It never was. But I like to. Sometimes I feel like it, but it's actually, it's never on my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, my interpretation of what not what's not wrong is you can talk about things you're grateful for in a positive way too. I think what's not wrong is just a, a way in of blocking out all the traditional complaints. And, you know, even the little things like, you know, we're out in the country right now, there's trees. I don't know if you noticed, there was a spectacular big hawk that flew by the window a little earlier. I try not, I, I remember one time uh, I was up in front of a, a group that, that Janine and I were actually teaching together and it was in Monterey and these whales started spouting in the background. And I just felt so illuminated inside, but I was afraid to tell the class about it because I thought, okay, that's the end of my lecture. Everybody just runs to the window to see the whales. But there's always something, even 
waking up in the morning and getting licked in the face by my dog is such a beautiful way to start the day. I feel like I just got here. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the ticket I got this morning or the fact that I started eating vegetables and my body's like, what the hell is going on with, with that? I have a very upset stomach right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh-huh. I wasn't taking great care of myself. Uh-huh. So there's a little bit of adjustment period. But I was in my head this whole time. I feel like I'm here right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, what a good feeling that always is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. I feel this is great to be here. I read your book, Work Like Your Dog. Yeah. And I loved it because I'm a dog person. Yeah. I loved it so much. The first thing that popped into my mind was I take my little dog on the same walk every single day. And it's not routine for her. Every single time she's investigating, she's curious. She wants to see what's happening. She'll always find the chicken bone that wasn't on the field the day before <laughs> uh-huh. every single time. Yeah. And so I resonate with that, that when I look around, when I, one of my like mantras is help me forget everything I think I know, mm. because what I think I know is, Oh my gosh, my brain's not working right. This is not usable. Right. This material. Right. Oh, I need to pack before I go fly. And that's going to be a disaster because none of it's been monitored. <laughs> what it is, is that I have this story of the future and the future has, Oh, I need to do laundry. I need to do this, do that. But what's actually true is that I'm just here with you sitting in a chair. Yeah. And that's a big part of what I pulled from, from the writing is that dogs just go with the flow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course people often say I've been working like a dog as if that's a bad thing. And you know what this book kind of turned on his head was, It'd be your lucky day if you could be looking like working like your dog, because everything is new and fresh and exciting for them. Like you mentioned, it's, it's like they're seeing things for the first time. I think the example we use in the book is you come home from a hard day at work. As soon as you open the front door, your dog is there in a flash, you know, eyes bright, tail wagging, every fiber of his being is going like, you came home. I can't believe you actually came home. This is the most fantastic thing that ever happened to me. So thrilled. doesn't matter that you came home yesterday. You're home now because everything is about now with a dog. And you go out to take out the garbage. 15 minutes later, you come back in the door, door. Your dog is still really thrilled to see you. So that question we ask is, wouldn't it be great if you could walk into work first thing in the morning and the people you work with would be that excited to see you? And that's how to create a kind of in the moment, as you say, supportive community. And it's possible. It really is. You know, my own staff of this, about 35 of us, we go on retreat together once a year. And it's about celebrating each other. We have, you should be celebrated your first day on the job, not after you've been around for 50 years. So we do a big welcoming ritual for the, for the new, newcomers. We do 10, 20, 30 your rituals. I don't think, has anybody made it to a 40 year? I mean, we're 40, I think 43, 44 years old now. But anyway, it's all about this idea of, I don't know if the purpose of our staff retreat is to get us so focused and tuned into each other that we can go out and do a good job in the world or the focus or the purpose of us doing a job is for us to be prosperous enough to be able to come together for a retreat 
and just create the kind of community that we want to model for the rest of the world. So it is possible to have a workplace and a workforce full of people who respect and enjoy each other. It's essential, in fact. Yeah, I had a I had a therapist that I had serious trust issues. Yeah. I'm sure lots of people do. But, yeah. And I had this weird rule that you had to earn my trust before you got it. And the therapist kind of pointed out like, well, it's kind of hard to earn your trust. So no one's going to earn your trust and you're never going to get this opportunity yeah. to have somebody honor your trust. Yeah. I think you need to gamble with it a little bit. You know, you need to give some of it away. And that that's a huge part. What I get from your whole message, your whole book is just give it away. Like if I want to be greeted with open arms at the cafe I go to every morning, I better show up tomorrow and greet them with open arms. Yeah. And they'll probably meet me there. They might yeah. think I'm a lunatic, but yeah. Yeah. No, that was, you know, the, one of the chapters was like, try to spend a week relating to other people the way your dog relates to you. So if somebody does something that strikes you as good, you go overboard in appreciating them. And yeah, people think you're nuts, but who doesn't love that kind of positive feedback and that kind of positive attention? It's just, we're all restricted by who people expect us to be, but it doesn't lead to a good, good result, does it? I mean, you look around, are most people happy? They're not. They're not. We need to shake it up. Yeah. 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 And yeah, you're going to get hurt more if, you, if you're more trusting. You know, certainly around Madoff, I found that out the hard way. Yeah. But you know what? I got to take responsibility for it. I got to move on. You know, it happened. And uh, if I spend my whole life looking backwards i miss all the other possible things that are that are there for me so janine and i were both very lucky to have been pretty successful in our careers and made a lot of money and so when it was all gone it was a lot of money to lose but you know what so we lived more simply after that and i don't want to say there was nothing lost but i want to say i'm at a point now where i'm 99% actually glad that it happened because there was so much learning for me and so much love. I mean, the very first time when I came back from Antarctica, because uh, I think it was December 10th that Madoff happened, and I went to a New Year's Eve party with a number of our friends, all of whom had been invested in Madoff, all of whom had lost everything. And we went around the, the table, and the host asked the question, if you could do something differently... What would you do differently? And I think it was the first two, maybe even the first three people who all said, I wouldn't change a thing. They said, I am in such an expanded place right now. My heart is so open. I feel so spiritually awakened from this loss and from just being able to count on everybody here and how people have taken me in. And they said, no amount of money would compensate for that. And I was like, whoa. That is a different way of looking at things and a way that I hadn't thought. I was still in the, I got ripped off. You know, I was wrong. This guy is a psychopath. This guy, but, you know, and I was like, whoa, um, is life terrible in this moment? No, it isn't. Am I going to get by okay? Yeah. Does it help me to get myself all, you know, um, upset over and over and over again about the same thing? No, it doesn't. And I think that was the beginning of the real evolution for me of, hey, 
I'm going to move forward. And you know what? I bet I'm going to make some more money too. Yeah. And, and that certainly happened. And you wrote yeah. gr- great books after that. And you continue yeah. to do, and you didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome yeah. and fantastic. Yeah. And Janine also. You know, Janine's yeah. book, Women, Food, and God, which was a huge New York Times bestseller, came out two years after Madoff. And so, um, you know, one of our friends joked with us and said, like, well, you weren't poor for very long, were you? But that wasn't the point. Yeah, of course it came back. But even if it didn't come back, we were in a great place. We were in a great place. Yeah. What was the big... So I, it's, it's hard for me to even fathom you saying, like, appreciating the journey you went on. What was the journey? You know, the journey was I was the kind of person who always loved treating everybody and I'm always picking up lunch. And to be forced by circumstance, by people saying, hey, I know what happened. Let me buy you lunch. And it was so beautiful to be on the receiving end of that. I mean, life looked very different and people were incredibly generous. And I was kind of thrown back on my own resources, like you said, kind of having to start from scratch. Although, you know, I was lucky. There was people 10, 15 years older than me that I knew who had retired already. And this was 2008 that Madoff happened. The economy was just about you know, fell completely apart. They had a really tough time and were at survival level. At least I was able to keep, you know, not... The only time I felt pressured was when I thought um, of how much I had lost rather than how much (laughs) I still had, you know? And it was gone. What's the point of of living that life? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was super gone. It was super gone, (laughs) you know? Yeah, so, all right. Gosh, it's hard to even picture. So one of my favorite clips that I saw on the Playfair website yeah. was the work that you do in the prisons with the entrepreneurial program yeah. in, the, in the prisons. Yeah. And to see, I mean, I felt like in a way, you know, I, I started wrestling and I started working out in a way it was because I was so scared. I didn't want people to mess with me, you know? And when I look at the prisoners, right. And they're tattooed and they're big and they're very intimidating. And after, over the course of the group, they're little kids and they're just having fun and they're not worried. They're clearly very safe in that group. And I'm just curious, that's got to be a totally different experience for you, yeah. right? From going from working with executives and corporations yeah. to working with you know college students with their whole lives ahead of them. What have the inmates taught you working with them? Because it's such a different experience where they they have a lot more work to do in terms of being grateful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, this is a beautiful program. It's called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. And it's only in Texas right now, which, of course, is not a state that has a great reputation for its penal system. Um, but this is a private organization that goes in, and this one particular prison that that video was shot at is in Cleveland, Texas, right outside of Houston. And over half the prison now is involved in this program. So if you want to be involved in this program, you have to want to start your own business once your sentence is over. You have to have less than three years left on your sentence. And if you're accepted, you can transfer from another prison into this one. And they really are hungry to learn. And of course, I mean, you saw some of the beautiful things that the, that the inmates said at the end. You know, uh, it was great to finally have to get a chance to let down my macho image 
and I haven't had this much fun in years, which unfortunately is true because they're there to pay for what they did. And paying for it with joy is not exactly what most people are bringing. But I mean, they were so hungry to just play and let loose. And you saw the on that video, the exuberant way they were dancing with each other. Um, and yes, it was a scary group of people. I mean, the dental work is not great with some of them. And, and they're kind of come to grips with they want to be different than they were. And, you know, what I love about this particular program, they try to undermine the macho culture that you find in most prisons by calling each other by what are called sweet names. And so the guys in that, in that video, when we're having our class, the guys are, are named things like Buttercup and Puddin' Pie and Mighty Mouse. And, you know, I, I think I might have mentioned to you once my favorite was a guy called Beverly Hills Chihuahua. And uh, they come up with sweet names for the faculty as well. So after the first time I, I taught there, you know, at the very end, they said, okay. And so they do a little huddle and they came up with their sweet name for me, which was Sweet Richard Simmons. I actually was not shocked by that because I do, I mean, I get it. I kind of look like Richard Simmons. I got the, the little Afro. I'm very bouncy up on stage. I have that kind of energy. I actually met Richard Simmons once. We were both on a corporate program. And as soon as I saw him, I went up to him. I said, you know, people are telling me all the time that I, they, I remind them of you. And um, he couldn't see it to his credit. He um, said, I, I don't get it. He said, in fact, um, he got he borrowed a Polaroid camera from somebody and he took a little selfie of the two of us, which he gave to me. And he said, next time somebody tells you they remind you of me, show them this picture and show them we don't look alike. But, you know, I think he was wrong about that. Actually, I can see the, the resemblance. But the very next time I went back to work in the prison, this was really great. I got up on the stage and I knew I had had a really strong impact the first time. They wrote me beautiful letters, the inmates, and at, on the drive to the prison, the guy who picked me up said, oh, there's a lot of buzz. It's about 90% new. This is the next class, but they've heard about you. They're really excited to have you there. And some of the old timers who are still, you know, serving out their sentence. They wanted to come back. So I walk up to the stage and, and there's kind of a prison DJ and he started playing loud music and everybody's clapping and I'm getting excited. And I noticed they're pushing this one guy up towards the front of the stage. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know kind of what it's like in sixth grade when everybody's in on the joke except for you? These guys are all yelling things out and I can't quite tell what they're saying. And everybody's like pointing at this one guy who they're pushing up towards me. And I have no idea what's going on. No idea what's going on. You know, it feels bad enough in sixth grade, but in prison, it feels really freaky to be the only one. Of the, and so they push him up to the front of the stage and, and the guy puts on dance music and he starts kind of dancing, looking at me and everybody is yelling and screaming. And I jump down and he's dancing and I'm dancing and the place is going wild. What I found out later was this young prisoner is also nicknamed sweet Richard Simmons. And so they wanted to see the two Richard Simmonses dance together, which was really fun. But of course, nobody told me about it. I think the message for them was, because they all want to, you know, they, and this program is great. They go, when they're released from prison, they go live in a halfway house for a while while they're starting their business. But the message so many of them resonated was they were not treated well when they were employees and they get a chance to do it differently this time.
because they're going to, you know, some of them are going to be sole practitioners, but other ones have dreams of their business taken off and being able to hire people and getting that message of you have a chance to go out and be a missionary because people are going to respect you because you've been through it and you really turned your life around, but you want to turn it around in a way that people see it as a gift. You know, this is not a punishment for people. You know plenty about punishment. This is about rising above that. And and I really felt like they were an incredibly receptive audience. It was just such a joy to, you know, I would say we did 20% talk and 80% just playing, dancing. And it was fantastic. It was truly fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's a good exercise to kind of break that seriousness? Well, you know, one of the ones that we played with the inmates, this is kind of funny. We played uh, a game of rock, paper, scissors, where people start in partners. But when you lose, you become your partner's hype man, their cheerleader. And so, you know, they go out to, to do battle with the next person and you're behind them. You know, I'm going like, Sam, Sam, Sam. And then you go and beat someone else and you inherit them and their hype man to be your hype man. So by the end, there's only two people left, but half the room is cheering for one and half the room <laughs> is cheering for the other. It's so fun. And then there and most places when a person wins, they pick them up on their shoulders and carry them around. And sometimes I, I bring them up on stage and take a selfie of everybody cheering for them that I, that I send to them. But in this particular time, at the prison, we had an odd number of people. So I jumped in and I started playing also. And I, I don't know what happened. I was just on an incredible winning streak. I won like the first 10 games and I kept thinking, I don't want to keep winning. I don't want to be the victor of this whole thing. But you know, it, there's so much chance involved. And I mean, yes, you can play it. So it was with great relief that I actually got vanquished in that game. And then I got to be in somebody's posse and cheering for them. But what, you know, what I love about that game is it's competitive but it's also supportive at the same time. You get It doesn't matter if you win or lose because you're part of an ongoing organism that has as its lead one person. But as soon as you, as soon as your person loses, you just switch your allegiance to somebody else. It's like in the Games Preserve, which was the name of the, the facility we used to have. We used to play volleyball, but you know how volleyball you rotate around on your team? We would rotate to the other side of the net too. So if your your team was winning like 10 to 2 and you got rotated onto the losing team, all of a sudden, you know, what just happened here? <laughs> so everybody, you know, you blur the lines between winning and losing, which differentiates between you and me. And, and all these games try to blend a sense of it's us together. That's what's important. Yeah. And turning regular things into a game. Right. Like the rock, yeah. paper, scissors is an obvious game. But yeah, the way I'm thinking about bringing this into my life is making it a game, you know, making things I don't like a game, like with reward or appreciation. Yeah, there was a company up in Sacramento whose name I blanked on at the moment, but they used to start off the day by taking all the tasks that people didn't like to do, like taking the deposits to the bank at the end of the day and cleaning up the, the coffee filters in the kitchen and taking out the garbage. And they would write them all out on a slip and they would put them in balloons and they would blow up balloons. And then 
at a certain point, everybody would take like a, a pointy thing and you would pop one of the balloons, which was really fun. And then whatever sat in there, you just did it for the day. And so they did make a really funny kind of celebration slash game out of assigning the things that people didn't want to do, but it wasn't so terrible. And especially, you knew that the next day you were going to pop something else. And, you know, that kind of spirit of we're all in this together is a great way to turn things around. If somebody's not in management, but they're just an employee yeah. of a team that could use help, a team or a family or any community that could really use help, how do they carry the light into a group that might not, they might be used to their misery or used to their toxic levels how does yeah. one start yeah yeah well you know even some big organizations have thought about how to do that how to make it peer reward and recognition rather than oh if it doesn't come from my manager that's the only thing that helps and um <clears throat> i think one of the videos you might have looked at too i i tell the story of what wells fargo did with their, they gave a $35 gift certificate to each of their employees. But the catch was, this isn't for you. This is for you to award to one of the other people in the bank who has the, done the best job of supporting you and being excellent in your job. So it was a true peer reward and recognition program. And there was no limit to how many of those any one person working behind the scenes could receive. And then they got really creative with their rewards because they took the 35 people who had gotten the most rewards and those people just cashed in the checks, of course, but then they invited them to an awards banquet that was hosted by the chairman of the board and the president of the bank. And they gave them a choice of 101 different awards that were really creative. And I actually, I hope you don't mind. I'll just run a few, a couple of these. I, I wrote them down for myself here. Number 28 was a $200 shopping spree at Carl Reichert's favorite store. He was the chairman of the board, Banana Republic. So I'm actually glad. I like that store myself. I'm glad that he did that. And lunch at Paul Hazen's favorite lunch spot. He was the president of the bank, Burger King. So you get to spend the morning shopping with the chairman, lunching with the president. Number 18, a week off with pay. Number 36, payment of your December home mortgage, lease, or rent. Number 43, a two-hour body massage on company time on April 15th. So again, you know, this is one I love here. Two pounds of Mrs. Fields cookies delivered to your desk each month for the next year. Because that's one like, I think I want that, but that might have some consequences, unintended <laughs> consequences that maybe I don't want. But to help you work that one off, they paired that with number 55, I'm sorry, number 57, an exercise bicycle and a complete sweat outfit to go with it. Here's something anybody could use. Once a month house cleaning service for the next six months. And here's one that you alluded to before. This was the first time I heard about this. Carl Reichert, Paul Hazen, or one of the vice chairmen does your job for the day. You train and supervise. I love that So one. again, yeah, yeah, yeah. They got everybody in their organization to participate. So number eight, a bag of fertilizer for your garden, personally supplied by the horses that pull the Wells Fargo stagecoach. So, <laughs> and this is another one that many, many people have instituted. Number 88, a menu item named in your honor by the Wells Fargo cafeteria. So it doesn't cost them anything, but your name is up there, you know, the Sam Burger or whatever it is. These are, are ways that you don't have to be top management, 
but but you get something started just to get things connected. So I know many companies where employees have just started the idea of clash dressing day, like Ben and Jerry's used to do that all the time, where you had to come to work dressed in some outfit that, you know, where your skirt and your top clashed or something. Or people have had, you know, polka dot day or something like that. Just an easy, simple thing, but just to give people a double take when they come in and look at each other. You know, these organized company events are one thing, but just, you know, I'll tell you one of the things that we do that's really fun. We do an end of the day appreciation for the day, but we do it in what's called the alphabet system. So let's say you and I wanted to appreciate how this podcast has been going so far. (laughs) So I would start off and I would say something appreciative about my experience or being with you, but I have to start my sentence with the letter A. And then you would say the next thing, but you need to start your sentence with the letter B. And so we would go through the alphabet that way. So I might say like, um, you know, anytime I think about this podcast, I'm going to think about how self-disclosing you are as a podcast host and how rare that is. Say something with a B. Yeah. By the way, you made me feel like it's going to be okay no matter what. I really appreciate that. Um <laughs> You're not going to judge me based on the outcome of this. Great. Well, certainly I appreciate you saying that. And So anyway, we could go um, yeah. through it. But you know what? It's a really way for people to focus their creative creativity. And people laugh at what other people come up with when you, you know, we don't usually do it one-on-one like this. We usually do it a group of whatever, six people going around in a circle. It's really, really fun. Really fun. Nice. Well, I... I've taken enough of your time, but I just wanted to finish up with something I like to do, which is if you were to send a message to either a younger version of yourself, Hmm. maybe the version right when you lost all your life savings, or (laughs) uh, that's, that'd be an interesting person to get to talk to Uh or somebody who's just feeling lost and they could just really just use a pointer in some way or another. What is the message that you think conveys the most important need to know for what you need to do for the next few steps. Mm -hmm. You know what I would say, be true to your vision um, because you're doing something that's really unique and maybe it'll be rewarded financially. I have a hunch that it will, but you know, I mean, I remember my father saying to me, he said to me in Yiddish, meaning kind of from this kind of foolishness you're actually going to be able to make a living (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and um, you know he wanted me to keep my teaching certificate but you know no matter how crazy it looks and it's funny because when I first started doing Playfair all my friends were so encouraging, but I didn't really wasn't until years later, I found out that they all thought it was completely insane. They just, you know, they didn't want to discourage me because I was like so on fire about it. But they said, you know, one of my friends said to me, nobody thought you were going to make a success of this thing. We just didn't want to make you crazy by telling you what we really thought. But, you know, you can always compare yourself to somebody else. You know, I, I just feel really blessed in the way it turned out. Yeah, you know, I'm not 
as famous as some people, as rich as some people. But what does that matter? I just feel so on purpose, and it hasn't stopped. I mean, Playfair's been going, I think, 43 years now. And um, it's going to go after I'm gone, too. It's just a real, we've tapped into something really real. And I used to say, I hope the world puts me out of business where people don't have to relearn how to play. And instead, everybody just lives such a joyous, fun life that there's no need for Playfair. But I don't think it's my lifetime that's going to happen. <laughs> but hopefully we're inching closer to that. That's perfect. Thank you so much yeah. for coming. Okay, great. Thanks, Sam. Look at that. We made it to the end of the episode, even though I wanted to stay in bed all day. Woo! Go team. Okay. I hope you enjoyed it. Gosh, isn't Matt contagious? I love it. To find more of him, to find more of us, to help support us, everything is in the description of the podcast. And until next time, I love you guys. Thank you for listening and bearing with me. And I'll see you next week, hopefully, if all things go according to plan. All right. Bye-bye.